Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Asikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, August the 20th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches uh, on uh, the armed attacks on a Hyatt Hotel in Mogadishu, Somalia, uh, which reportedly has left 20 people dead. Kenyan President-elect William Ruto is making preparations to take charge of East Africa's largest economy after winning the recent national elections. The Ethiopian government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has put forward the conditions for a peace agreement with the rebel TPLF in the north of the Horn of Africa state. And South Sudan has made an assessment that the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project will have a positive impact for the entire region. In the second hour, we continue our Black August programming looking back on the Chicago Rebellion of 1966 and a historic speech uh, by then uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee SNCC Chairman Stokely Carmichael, speaking on black power, delivered in January of 1967 at Michigan State University. Finally, we examine the recent elections in detail in the East African state of Kenya and the future prospects for uh, the country. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the Vive Orchestra, uh, led uh, by guitarist uh, Verki. Uh, let's listen in. <laughs>
Thank you. 
Welcome back. The classic uh, Pan-African Congolese music uh, of the Vive Orchestra uh, under the leadership of Bertiz on electric guitar. Classic music uh, from uh, the African continent. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And these are some of the headlines in the Pan-African Newswire for today in Somalia. Islamic militants have stormed a hotel in the capital of Mogadishu, and they engaged in hours-long exchange of fire with security forces that left at least 20 people dead, according to police and witnesses in Mogadishu. In addition, at least 40 people were wounded in the late Friday night attack, and security forces rescued many others, including children from the scene at Mogadishu's popular Hyatt Hotel. Uh, this was uh, reported to the international media earlier today. The attack started with explosions outside the hotel before the government entered the building. And you can read the story in its entirety uh, by just logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. In Kenya, uh, the president-elect prophesied one day uh, that he would be Kenya's commander-in-chief on top of a presidential parade square at the JKIA that's the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport. Dr. Ruto revealed his presidential ambitions at the parade square at the airport soon after the late Moy arrived in the country from the United States in 1990. He stood at the pavilion where Mze Moy used to take a salute before inspecting the guard of honor and vowed that one day he would stand there too. President William Ruto prophesied one day he would be Kenya's commander-in-chief on top of a presidential parade square at Jomo Kenyatta's International Airport. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. And, of course, uh, today is Saturday, August 20th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, in the Horn of Africa, state of Ethiopia, the spokesperson for the Ethiopian Prime Minister's Office announced uh, just this last past Wednesday the seven-member peace committee, which had drawn up a, quote, proposal, unquote, to start ceasefire talks with the TPLF rebels and to end the war in the northern region of Ethiopia. Will a ceasefire agreement and national dialogue end the 20-month-long war in northern Ethiopia is the question asked in an article published by Borkina on Wednesday 
the spokesperson uh, for the Ethiopian Prime Minister's office insisted the government wanted talks with rebel leaders in the Tigray region to start. For this purpose, a plan was drawn up by a seven-member peace committee established in June. And finally, in regard to the Republic of South Sudan, a high-level delegation uh, just this last past Monday visited the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project site in the Bini Shagul Gumuz region of Ethiopia. Kong Tip-Tip uh, Galuak, uh, the security advisor to President Salva Kiir, was greeted by Ethiopian intelligence chief Temeskin Torino on arrival at the Bole International Airport leading a delegation. After visiting the dam with members of his delegation, he reportedly said, quote, we have confirmed that the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam will not have a negative impact on the riparian countries. He added that the project is beneficial for all the Nile riparian countries. He sees the GERD as a project that will connect neighboring countries through the power supply. With that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And in concluding uh, the, this segment of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency, which was founded in January of 1998, uh, and since that time has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, August 20th, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Well, I certainly hope so, and in a sense, I feel that the threat of violence tonight is diminished a great deal as a result of the agreement. I don't want to give the impression uh, that the agreement reached this afternoon will in any way solve the ultimate problems which we face in Chicago, uh, but I do think they will do a great deal to ease tensions tonight. We'll have an opportunity to talk to you at some length later in this broadcast, Dr. King. First, for an on-the-spot report direct from a National Guard command post in Chicago, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. This is Bill Plant at the Northwest Armory in Chicago. Despite that agreement between Mayor Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King, 3,000 Illinois National Guard troops are deployed tonight in a four-square-mile area of Chicago's near southwest side where shooting and vandalism and rioting have occurred for the past three nights. The troops are commanded by Major General Francis Kane, commander of the Guard. This is his command post. Thus far, this evening has been relatively quiet. A situation map pinpoints the trouble spots of previous nights. Additional troops are standing by, ready to serve as security guards in the event that prisoners are taken tonight. Chicago Police Superintendent Orlando Wilson said today that he had advised the mayor to call out the Illinois National Guard because he felt that the situation here was beyond the capacity of civil authority. The guardsmen are armed with pistols, rifles, grenades, machine guns, bayonets, and they will use tear gas, their commander says, if it is necessary. They are now patrolling the area. Two persons are dead in the wake of the rioting. There is heavy property damage. There was much looting and vandalism. It all began with a minor incident, and it grew steadily worse. This is the story of the Chicago riots. CBS News presents a special report. The Chicago Riots. Here is CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Chicago is the second city of this nation. Tonight it is the nation's number one battleground embroiled in racial crisis. It is a proud and prosperous city, home of the meat packer, the nation's rail hub, merchant to the Middle West. Luxury skyscrapers attest to its affluence. Yacht clubs dot its lake shores. Gracious suburbs lie around its central core. But in that central core are the Negro ghettos, where the turmoil of the last three nights was spawned. Almost one of every three persons in Chicago's three and a half million is a Negro. Citywide, unemployment among those Negroes is three times that of whites. And among teenagers, the disparity is even greater. Eight out of ten Negro children go to segregated schools. The annual income of the average Negro family in Chicago is 40% lower than the average white families. Into that environment last Sunday came Dr. Martin Luther King, moving the Negro revolution from south to north. Last Sunday, Dr. King addressed a civil rights rally, an anti-poverty rally at Chicago's Soldier Field. He outlined 35 demands for equal rights, and he insisted that nonviolence was the only way to achieve them. After speaking, Dr. King led his followers on a three-mile march to City Hall to post a list of those demands to make Chicago, in his words, a free and open city. Those demands, among other things, called for open housing, more Negro employment, and negotiations by the city with so-called welfare unions organized by the civil rights movement. Then at City Hall, as King used adhesive tape to post the demands, the marchers crowded round him. King took the dramatic action just a day before meeting with Chicago's Mayor Richard Daley on the problems of the Chicago Negro. Afterwards, they held separate news conferences, 
and expressed sharply differing points of view. They have to be resolved. They can't just be resolved overnight. No reasonable person thinks they can, and no reasonable person expects they can. But I know if people sit down and exchange what thoughts they are, and also with the problem, give some of the ways and means of solving the problem. It's easy to keep saying, certainly we have slums. You have slums in Atlanta, you have slums in New York, you have slums in every city of the United States, and the people of Chicago certainly are not proud of the slums. I'm not proud of the slums. I would hope that tomorrow every slum uh, building in Chicago would be demolished and we'd have a decent home and a decent apartment for every family. This is the aim of the present administration, and this is our program, and this is our objective, and we're going to go through with it, and we're trying to go through with it. The mayor said to us that uh, things were already going on, that they were seeking to do certain things on the question of slums and on uh, the various problems that we face in housing. Our contention was that while things were being done, they were merely bringing about surface changes and that the problem is so gigantic in extent that it demanded structural changes. It demanded an imaginative, bold program because the Negro community can no longer live with token changes. Dr. King and Mayor Daley achieved no meeting of the minds. Critics of both said that neither man was really listening to the other. Dr. King talked later of the methods the Negro community would use to secure what he called a free and open Chicago. He spoke of using the Negro vote, of boycotts, of sit-ins and picketing. And then, on the west side of Chicago, in 96-degree temperatures at 5 o'clock last Tuesday afternoon, some Negro children at the corner of Roosevelt Road and Throop Street opened a fire hydrant. Here was the shabby intersection where it all began. Chicago slum kids wanted some relief from the heat, so the residents did what residents of city slums do everywhere. They turned on a hydrant. But the police came and turned it off. They said they had to preserve the water pressure in case of fire. The Negro residents were not impressed. They turned another hydrant on. As fast as police went around turning hydrants off, the Negroes opened others. And they protested that once again the police were singling them out. The Negroes said the hydrants were being allowed to run open just a short distance away where Italian-Americans lived. The youngsters made the most of it as the street was turned into a kind of wading pool. These are young people who must find most of their pleasures in the street. Many of them are school dropouts. The juvenile delinquency rates in Chicago are highest in this area. 28 of every 100 children here are classified delinquent. When the police turned off the hydrants once again, this playful spirit that you see evaporated quickly. Rocks were thrown at police, and then the real trouble began. There was a chase down the street, and then arrests followed. This was just the beginning of a night of trouble and vandalism in which 24 people were to be picked up by the police. This episode of heat, water, and sudden temper was the start of an evening in which store windows in the neighborhood were broken and stores were looted, but the incidents were still relatively minor. The next morning, Mayor Daley held a news conference at which religious leaders were present, including Roman Catholic Archbishop John Cody. They spoke of the disturbances the night before, and both men portrayed the street episodes in very mild terms. I think that uh, 
We do not need to be too concerned about these occasional things, although they're certainly giving a bad image to our city. I would hope and pray that we would have the understanding that we're trying to bring to every section of our city. I don't think it was a riot. I think that it was, as other cities would describe such an event, a, a juvenile incident. But later that day, police again closed an open water hydrant, and this time the response in the Negro neighborhood was furious. There was more vandalism, there was looting, and crowds of Negroes surged into the streets. They were angry, and they were bent on destruction. 400 policemen moved into the area. They threatened to arrest anyone who didn't go home and stay there, and they made good their warning. A number of policemen were injured by flying bricks and rocks and bottles. The night brought intensified violence. Molotov cocktails were hurled into buildings and numerous fires were set. Firemen were stoned when they tried to put out the fires. In one block alone, four fires were burning at the same time. While buildings were gutted, dozens of stores were being looted. As police marched through the streets, there was firing by snipers. Police fired back and two residents were hit and wounded by stray bullets. Police arrested 20 Negro youths and seized dozens of others who were later released and scores of people were injured in this second night of combat between Negroes and police. By Thursday, as local church leaders gathered at the Shiloh Baptist Church to see what they could do to help ease the situation, it was obvious that something more than juvenile incidents were involved. But Dr. King maintained that his nonviolent movement was not to blame. We are trying to conduct a nonviolent movement here in Chicago, and we're going on with that program, but we need support. And there's no point in the power structure and anybody else saying that because we are peacefully going around trying to change conditions that we are the cause of the riots. That's dishonest. It is untrue. It is unfair to say it to the public because we have stood up for nonviolence with all of our hearts, and those who will make this peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. And we've got to get this over. I need help. I need some victories. I need some concessions to take back. Chester Robinson, who formed the West Side Organization, said the violence could be held down if the clergyman would help get the young people back inside their homes. This is why we have to get out into the streets. Not in a march, not as a protest, but as uh, men and women who are trying to solve problems. And if we can talk to some of these mothers, we can talk to some of these kids, talk to some of these uh, teenagers, we can get them inside. But if we don't, there's going to be more burning, there's going to be more... Uh, police brutality, and tonight there might be some shooting on the part of the community people. And there was, in the most violent night of the week. CBS News correspondent John Lawrence reports. George, stay down. There might be something chilling over here. Right. Stop calling me, sir. Hey, sir, just there was as much gunfire on the corner of Wood and Lake last night as a Vietnam battlefield. Take a 
A hundred police shot it out with snipers in an all-Negro apartment fight. The snipers fired from windows. The police blasted back from behind parked cars. I can't tell from here. On the second window down. On the left. Yes. That's the son of a bitch. Right up there. Despite all the gunfire at Wood and Lake, not one person was wounded in the crowded buildings, and no police were hit. The snipers escaped in the maze of stairways and apartments. The bloodshed began later, a few miles away. This is Roosevelt Road, running through the heart of the Negro West Side, scene of most of the looting and shooting. It is a slum boulevard of white store owners and Negro customers, where the white man is not welcome after dark. Almost every store window was smashed for blocks. Almost everything was stolen or destroyed, and about a dozen shops were set ablaze. None of the fires along Roosevelt Road appeared to be serious, and few people were hurt. The biggest blow was to the store owners, who lost tens of thousands of dollars in goods. A Molotov cocktail, a bottle, gasoline, and a rag for a wick makes an effective homemade firebomb. Many Molotov cocktails were thrown in the streets. A boy was seized as a suspect in the shooting of a policeman in the narrow alley off Roosevelt Road. The policeman, shot in the back while chasing a looter, survived his wound. The wounded patrolman was rushed to a hospital where he's recovering today. One of the suspects, deathly afraid, pleaded with the police not to shoot him. A shot rang out and the police ducked for cover. This young man, who was from Mississippi, was one of two Negroes shot and killed last night. Police say he was looting a store on Roosevelt Road, chased down the same alley where the policeman was wounded, and shot. Many were shot in the series of sporadic shootings between police and Negroes. Hundreds were arrested. After dawn, the prisoners were taken to criminal court for the massive task of booking them. They were charged with everything from disorderly conduct to treason. Treason in the case of 13 persons caught in an apartment. Police say they were talking about narcotics and planning widespread demolition and murder. There were reports that militant revolutionary groups were taking part in the rioting especially the shooting at police. During the day, it was relatively quiet on the west side. There was scattered looting, but no serious outbreaks until mid-afternoon. A huge fire broke out in the riot area. A bottling company plant burst into flames and burned to the ground, and apparently it was set by arsonists. A co-owner of the company told CBS News correspondent Bruce Morton that he had been threatened, that he was warned as late as this morning 
when he was told his block-long building would be burned. And it was burned. When that wall collapsed, people were evacuated from their homes in the area. But apparently, despite all the flames along that block, no one was hurt. One Negro employee said all the Negroes in the buildings had been warned today to get out, for the building would be burned down. Then Illinois Governor Otto Kerner mobilized the National Guard. 3,000 men from the 33rd Infantry Division were called to their armories, dressed in battle fatigues and armed. Just takes a second to slip it on. Tear gas, but just as a secondary precautionary measure. The division has just returned from two weeks of summer training, and its commanding general says his men are well prepared for riot control. But the guardsmen, who are civilians, seem upset, not welcoming the task of keeping order, possibly shooting at people in their hometown. John Lawrence, CBS News, Chicago. In the last three nights, then, in Chicago, there have been more than 300 arrests in the riot areas, dozens injured, two deaths. At this moment, 900 police are scattered through the Negro ghettos, guarding against another violent night. As John Lawrence said, Governor Otto Kerner has ordered out 3,000 men of the Illinois National Guard. They're at the ready. And the citizens of Chicago wait anxiously and hopefully for a peaceful night ahead. The question many ask tonight is, why Chicago and why now? Many yep. of these teenagers are not vicious within themselves to the point of wanting to rise up against a whole city. Whenever they have difficulty, these groups constantly have their little wars among themselves. But it is not a normal procedure to expect young people to rise up against a whole city. It has to be some outside interference. Somebody who should not be doing it. Well, I think uh, you can't charge it directly to Martin Luther King, but surely some of the people that came in here and uh, have been talking for the last year in violence and showing pictures and instructing people how to conduct violence, and they're on this staff, they're responsible in a great measure for the instructions that have been given, the training of the youngsters, and this has been called to the attention. I have repeatedly for the last year. The people who were in here training, actually training. And there's tapes on that, there's documentation, there's anything you want to show that certain elements that were in our city were in here for no other purpose but to bring disorder on the streets of Chicago. Someone has to train them. Who makes a Molotov cocktail? Don't you think a youngster makes that? Someone has to train them. Someone has to show them. Dr. Martin Luther King is in our Chicago studios. Dr. King, what about it, this charge that either you or your people are in some measure responsible for the violence that has broken out in Chicago the past three nights? Well, this is absolutely untrue and unfounded. It is a known fact all over the nation and over the world that I have taught consistently a doctrine of nonviolence. I have done it here in Chicago. And uh, all of the members of my staff are absolutely committed uh, to nonviolence, and I think it is totally unjust and even irresponsible to say that the individuals who are trying to bring about a peaceful re resolution of a very serious problem 
are responsible for riots when they develop. We do not advocate riots. We think they are socially destructive and that they are self-defeating. And I think we'll have to put the blame for this riot where it really is. And that is the failure of America and the failure of the city of Chicago to deliver its promises to the Negro people. This riot uh, was born out of the wounds of frustration, uh, despair, deep discontent, and uh, seething desperation on the part of those who were misguidedly lashing out against uh, a society that they feel did a grave injustice and continues to do a grave injustice to them. Uh, Dr. King, Mayor Daly says that your people, in a sense, perhaps taught violence by displaying films of violence. Films of what, for instance, to young people in Chicago? There have been instances when we showed films of Watts, but we did it for a very positive reason. We were seeking to show that Watts accomplished nothing but the death of 34 Negroes and the destruction of property and the destruction of a community where the people themselves live, where they needed uh, to hold it together. In other words, these films were shown to demonstrate the impracticality of violence and the fact that nothing could be more unwise than to follow the course of Watts. You are said just tonight to have reached an agreement with Mayor Daley in Chicago. Could you detail that agreement for us? Well, this agreement is uh, something that came about in an attempt to bring about some immediate relief. We realize that there are still long-term uh, things that must be done, and we will continue with that program to grapple with the serious problems of housing, of jobs, of education, welfare, and the other areas. But we felt that there were some things that the, the mayor could do today or tomorrow so that we could go back and say to the people that something will change, and this may ease tensions. What are uh, those we, things, Dr. King, that are going to change today or tomorrow? Well, the mayor first agreed to provide uh, water sprinklers, so to speak, that could be placed on fire hydrants in uh, communities where excessive heat existed and where children were in dire need of some cool air and cool water so that this would be done immediately. In those areas, people live in very crowded housing conditions, and it's something like this is needed. The second thing is that uh, in the areas of the riding, there are few parks and recreational facilities and no swimming pools. So an agreement was made to build swimming pools immediately and recreational facilities in those areas and to make it possible for Negroes to use uh, parks in adjacent communities where they have been harassed and intimidated in the past. And the other thing is the mayor agreed to appoint a committee of 100 citizens to review all police activities and make recommendations to him concerning ways and means to improve relationships uh, between policemen and uh, the citizens of the community, particularly the Negro community. Dr. King, we had a report this afternoon from uh, Washington correspondent Daniel Shore of CBS News of the fact that these Chicago riots were sparked at least in part, perhaps in large measure, by an organized guerrilla action by armed Negro extremists. Well, I don't know the details of uh, 
those who may be behind the riots. I mean, I don't know the details of forces that may have uh, sought to fan the flames and the riots. Uh, there may be groups that perpetuated it once it got started. It got started spontaneously. Now, after that, there may have been groups that uh, wanted to see violence and encouraged it. It is no secret that in uh, many of the ghettos of our country, we've read about this in magazines and other places, uh, there are groups strongly advocating violence and underground groups seeking to carry it out. Uh, and I think it is true that this may exist to some degree, but I have no information on that, and I certainly couldn't say that that is the case. Floyd McKissick, the national director of CORE, told me this afternoon that more and more Negroes across the country are buying more and more guns, Dr. King. Here again, this may be true. I know that uh, there is a mood in some segments of the Negro community uh, that is so impatient that uh, violence is becoming a part of their response. I think this is very unfortunate because I think violence creates many more social problems than it solves. But I do think that it is necessary for our nation to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the conditions of injustice, of economic deprivation, of depressing housing conditions, inadequate education, and all of these things which breed violence. For after all, the Negro is the victim of broken promises, of deferred dreams, and that's still a tragic gulf between promise and fulfillment. Thank you very much, Dr. King, in our Chicago studios. Roger Wilkins, director of the Community Relations Service of the Justice Department and a nephew of Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, was dispatched to Chicago early this evening to keep President Johnson and the Justice Department abreast of developments there in that city. For a progress report on what has transpired in Chicago while we have been on the air, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. Reports of scattered incidents are beginning to come in. They are officially classified as minor, rock-throwing, a group of children breaking a window, grabbing whatever they can hold and running with it, and some small crowds dispersed. And 3,000 National Guardsmen are patrolling. Josh Darza has that story. The first National Guard troops took to the streets just before 8 p.m. this evening. This initial unit was the 1st Battalion of the 3rd Brigade of the Illinois National Guard. These troops were armed with rifles, bayonets, hand grenades, BARs, machine guns, and every type of device used to quell disturbances. The Commandant of the, sec of the 3rd Brigade, Colonel Curtis Milan, a veteran of the fighting of Normandy in the Battle of the Bulge, says the National Guard is prepared even for door-to-door -door combat. It promised to be a long night on the west side of Chicago. The agreement reached between Mayor Richard Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King calls for the addition of sprinkler units to the fire hydrants in the city of Chicago, federal funds for pools, and a citizens' committee to discuss police problems. These will undoubtedly help, officials say, to alleviate the situation here. But whatever the future is to be in race relations, the city has gone to great lengths to ward off just such happenings as have occurred the past three nights. And those who know such conditions say that unless the conditions are wiped out, it could happen again. This is Bill Plant, CBS News at the Northwest Armory, Chicago. And so Chicago moves into another tense and difficult summer night. But not just Chicago. Well, the fact is that the traditional Negro leadership, the men of CORE and SCLC, 
of SNCC and the NAACP. These men confess they are not sure they can control the bitterness and the frustration rising now among Negroes in 40 cities of the North. Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Newark, Cleveland, St. Louis, Oakland, and Los Angeles. In all these cities, too, the fuse is lit. There is no intent here to cry danger where there is none. Rather, there is the need to tell America again what frustration, bitterness, and envy lie not very deep beneath the surface of this affluent society. This is Mike Wallace. Good night. This has been a special report from CBS News. Welcome back. And uh, that was a retrospective on uh, the July 1966 uh, Urban Rebellion in Chicago. And, of course, uh, we're commemorating Black August. Uh, this is August 20th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live this Saturday evening from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Muddy Waters, uh, the Chicago Urban Blues uh, via Duval County, Mississippi, uh, from uh, Mr. McKinley Morganfield, better known as Muddy Waters. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, August 20th, 2022, uh, Black August. And uh, we're going to continue our programming with a historic uh, speech, a rare archival audio file uh, from Michigan State University in February of 1967, uh, when the then uh, chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, uh, spoke uh, on the question of black power. Let's listen. Pleasure to be here. I've come to the conclusion that the first need of black power is to rid white snow. I'm going to read a article which I did for the Massachusetts Quarterly Review, which appeared in the 466 issue. It deals with the theoretical and philosophical concept of black power. It attacks the concept of integration as a route to allowing black people to get their liberation in this country. And it also attacks the concept expounded upon by the exponents of the coalition theory, notably Mr. Rustin, and then outlines programmatically a political program for black power. Uh, when we have the question and answer period, I know it's really impossible for people to deal with the content of what I say, so they usually ask uh, inane questions about, do you hate white people? Um, do you want to up the country? Why are you so full of hate? Um, if people could understand that in SNCC we're articulating a political philosophy, and if they could deal with that rather than ad hominem attacks, maybe the discussion could be fruitful. But I've learned that the American society is incapable of dealing with realities. One of the most pointed illustrations of the need for black power as a positive and redemptive force in a society degenerating into a form of totalitarianism is to be made by examining the history of distortion that the concept has received in the national media of publicity. In this debate, as in everything else that affects our lives, blacks are dependent on and at the discretion of forces and institutions within the society which have little interest in representing us honestly. Our experience with the national press has been that where they've managed to escape a meretricious special interest in get whitey sensationalism and race warmongering, individual reporters and commentators have been conditioned by the developing racism of the society to the point where they are incapable even of objective observation and reporting of racial incidents, much less the analysis of ideas. But this limitation of vision and perception is the inevitable consequence of the dictatorship of definitions, interpretation and conscience, along with the censorship of history that this society has inflicted upon blacks and consequently upon itself. Our concern for black power readdresses itself directly to this problem, the necessity to reclaim our history and our identity from the cultural terrorism and depredation 
of self-justifying white guilt. To do this, we shall have to struggle for the right to create our own terms through which to define ourselves and our relationship to the society and to have these terms recognized. This is the first necessity of a free people and the first right that any oppressor must suspend. The white fathers of American racism knew this instinctively, it seems, as is indicated by the continuous record of the distortion and omission in the chronicle of their dealings with the red and black men. A good example of that would be the um, westerns that we see on uh, the idiot box. You know. uh, there's a fight going on between the Indians and uh, white folks, and the Indians are winning. So they send for the cavalry. Here comes the cavalry, all proper, riding astern. They just got out of riding class. And they shoot up all the Indians, and they return to the fort, and they say, we had a victory today. We've killed all the Indians. And the women and the children run around and clap, and they kiss the lieutenant, and he rides away with the most beautiful chick. Now, when the reverse happens, when the Indians beat them up, you know, they come back to the, to the fort, dragging themselves. Those dirty Indians, they massacred us today. Yeah. And see, that's very important because a massacre is less honorable than is a victory. Everyone knows that because the Indians used to kill them with knives and the cavalry would kill the Indians with guns. And everyone knows that it's better to die by a gun than to die by a knife. <laughs> so that because white people could define the terms of that, they define a massacre as something dirty, something foul. So the poor Indians couldn't win, no matter how they tried. <laughs> In the same way that the Southern apologists for the Jim Crow system, which was established in the 1870s after, the after any effort to reconstruct the South along lines of true political democracy was subverted, have so obscured, muddied, and misrepresented the record of that period so that it is almost impossible to determine what really happened. Their contemporary counterparts are busy doing the same thing with the recent history of the civil rights movement. In 1964, for example, the National Democratic Party, led by Lyndon Bain Johnson and his boy, Wanda H. H. Humphrey, In the black community, we call H.H. H. Humphrey, handkerchief head Humphrey. Uh, that's a, a despicable yes man. Did you see him on television during the State of the Johnson message to the country? I call it the State of the Johnson message because I've never seen a man quote himself three times from his speeches publicly. But every time, every time Lyndon said something, my man, I'll be... <laughs> In SNCC, we call them Batman and Robin because they run a camp government. But anyway, when Batman and Robin was leading the Democratic Party, they cynically undermined the efforts of Mississippi's black population to achieve some degree of political representation. I'm talking about the 1964 convention in Atlantic City when the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party challenged the right of the regular Democratic Party at the National Democratic Party convention and was turned down. 
Yet, whenever the events of that convention are recalled by the press, one sees only that version fabricated by the press agents of the Democratic Party. A year later, the House of Representatives, in an even more vulgar display of political racism, made a hollow mockery of the political rights of Mississippi's blacks when it failed to unseat the Mississippi delegation to the House, which had been elected through a process which systematically excluded 450,000 voting-age blacks, almost one-half of the total electorate of that state. Yet, a month ago, they were able to displace Mr. Powell because he spent a lot of money with a lot of style. Whenever this event is mentioned in print, it is in terms which leaves one with the rather curious impression that somehow the oppressed black people of Mississippi are at fault for confronting the Congress with a situation in which they had no alternative but to endorse Mississippi's racist political practices. I mention these two examples because having been directly involved in them, I can see very clearly the discrepancies between what happened and the versions that are finding their way into general acceptance as some kind of popular mythology. Thus, the victimization of black people in this country takes place in two phases. First, in fact, indeed. And then secondly, and this is equally sinister, in the recording of those deeds. The black power program and concept which is being articulated by SNCC, CORE, and a host of community organizations in the ghettos of the North and South has not escaped that process. The white press has been busy articulating their own analysis, their own interpretations, and criticisms of their own creations. Now, I was a bit worried about that because when we first said black power, everybody came down against us and we couldn't figure out why. And I was reading George Bernard Shaw a couple of months later and I came across a sentence which I thought was quite apropos. Mr. Shaw says, all criticism is in fact an autobiography. For example, while the press had given wide and sensational dissemination to attacks made by the figures in the civil rights movement, foremost among which are Mr. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP and his counterpart, Whitney Young of the Urban League, and to the hysterical rantings about black racism made by the political chameleon that now serves as vice president, it has generally failed to give accounts of the reasonable and productive dialogue which has taken place in the black community and in certain important areas in the white religious and intellectual community. A national committee of influential Negro churchmen affiliated with the National Council of Churches, despite their obvious respectability and responsibility, had to resort to a paid advertisement to articulate their position, while anyone shouting the historical yappings of black racism got ample space. Thus, the American people have gotten at best a superficial and misleading account of the very terms and tenors of this debate. I wish to quote briefly from a statement by the National Committee of uh, Churchmen. The statement was a paid advertisement which appeared in the New York Times on July 31st of last year. It was what I thought a, a very good statement. It was signed by about 150 black churchmen across the country. I wish to quote at length from it. I quote, We, an informal group of Negro churchmen in America, are deeply disturbed about the crisis brought upon our country by historic distortion of important human realities in the controversy about 
black power. What we see shining through the variety of rhetoric is not anything new, but the same old problem of power and race which has faced our beloved country since 1619. The conscience of black men is corrupted because having no power to implement the demands of conscience, the concern for justice in the absence of justice becomes a chaotic self-surrender. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. We are faced now with a situation where powerless conscience meets conscienceless power. I would like to repeat that phrase because I believe it is axiomatic to race relations in this country. We are faced now with a situation where powerless conscience meets conscienceless power, threatening the very foundations of our nation. We deplore the overt violence of riots, but we feel it is more important to focus on the real sources of these eruptions. These sources may be abetted inside the ghetto, but their basic cause lies in the silent and covert violence which white middle-class America inflicts upon the victims of the inner city. In short, the failure of American leaders to use American power to create equal opportunity in life as well as law, this is the real problem and not the anguish cry for black power. Without the capacity to participate with power, that is, to have some organized political and economic strength to really influence people with whom one interacts, integration is not meaningful. America has asked its Negro citizens to fight for opportunity as individuals, whereas at certain points in our history what we have needed most has been opportunity for the whole group, not just for selected and approved Negroes. We must not apologize for the existence of this form of group power, for we have been oppressed as a group and not as individuals. We will not find a way out of that oppression until both we and America accept the need for Negro Americans, as well as for Jews, Italians, Poles, and white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to have, among others, and to wield group power. End of quote. Traditionally, then, for each new ethnic group, the route to social and political integration into America's pluralistic society has been through the organization of their own institutions with which to represent their communal needs within the larger society. This is simply what black power is all about. The strident outcry, particularly from the liberal community that has been evoked by this proposal, can only be understood by examining the historic relationships between black people and the white power structure in this country. Blacks are defined by two forces, our blackness and our powerlessness. There have been traditionally two communities in America, the white community, which has controlled and defined the forms that all institutions within the society would take, and the black community, which has been excluded from participation in the power decisions that shaped the society and has traditionally been dependent upon and subservient to the white community. This has not been accidental. The history of every institution of this society indicates that a major concern in the ordering and structuring of the society has been the maintaining of the black community in its condition of dependence and oppression. This has not been on the level of individual acts of discrimination between individual whites against individual blacks, 
but as total acts by the white community against the black community. This fact cannot be too strongly emphasized that racist assumptions of white superiority have been so deeply ingrained into the structure of the society that it infuses the entire functioning of this society and is so much a part of the national subconscious that it is taken for granted and is frequently not even recognized. Let me give an example of the difference between individual racism and what we in SNCC call institutionalized racism and the society's response to both. Now this is very, very important because I think white liberals focus their attention on individual acts of racism and in SNCC we focus ours on institutionalized racism. <coughs> when unidentified white terrorists bomb a black church and kill five black children, that is an act of individual racism widely deplored by most segments of the society, black and white. But when in that same city, Birmingham, Alabama, not five, but 500 black babies die each year because of lack of proper food, shelter, and medical facilities, and thousands more black people are maimed and destroyed physically, emotionally, and intellectually because of conditions of poverty and deprivation in the ghetto. That is an act of institutionalized racism. But the society either pretends it doesn't know of this situation or is incapable of doing anything meaningful about it. And this resistance to doing anything meaningful about the conditions in the ghetto comes from the fact that the ghetto is itself a combination of forces and special interests inside the white community. And the groups that have access to the resources and power to change that situation benefit politically and economically from the existence of that ghetto. It is more than a figure of speech to say that the black community in America is the victim of white imperialism and colonial exploitation. This is in practical economic and political terms true. And for philosophy students, it would be called a truism. There are over 20 million black people compromising 10% of this nation. That's what they tell us. I think they're lying. I think we more. They, for the most part, live in well-defined areas of the country, in the shanty towns and rural black belt areas of the South, and increasingly in the slums of northern and western industrial cities. If one goes into any black community, whether it be Jackson, Mississippi, Cambridge, Maryland, or Harlem, New York, one will find that the same combination of political, economic, and social forces are at work. The people in the black community do not control the resources of that community, its political decisions, its law enforcement, its housing standards, even the physical ownership of land, houses, and stores lie outside that community. It is white power that makes the laws, and it is violent white power in the form of armed white cops that enforce those laws with guns and nightsticks. The vast majorities of blacks in this country live in these captive communities and must endure these conditions of oppression because, and only because, we are black and powerless. I do not suppose at any point the men who control the power and resources of this country ever sat down and decided 
designed these black enclaves and formally articulated the terms of their colonial and dependent status, as was done, for example, by the apartheid government of South Africa, which this country supports. Yet one cannot distinguish between one ghetto and another. As one moves from city to city, it is as though some malignant racist planning unit had done precisely this, designed each one from the same master blueprint. And indeed, if the ghetto had been formally planned, rather than growing spontaneously and inevitably from the racist functioning of the various institutions that combine to make this society, it would be somehow less frightening. The situation would be less frightening because if these ghettos were the result of design and conspiracy, one could understand their similarity as being an artificial and consciously imposed upon quality, rather than the result of identical patterns of white racism which repeats itself in cities as distant as Boston is to what? Without bothering to list the historic factors which contribute to this pattern, economic exploitation, political impotence, discrimination in employment, education, one can see that to correct this situation will have far-reaching changes in the power relationships and the ingrained social patterns within the society. The question is, of course, what kind of changes are necessary and how is it possible to bring them about? In recent years, the answer to these questions, which had been given by a most articulate group of Negroes and their white allies, the liberals of all stripes, has been in terms of something called integration. According to the advocates of integration, social justice will be accomplished by, and I quote, integrating the Negro into the mainstream institutions of the society from which he has been traditionally excluded, end of quote. It is very significant that each time I've heard the formulation, it has been in terms of the Negro, the individual Negro, rather than in terms of the entire black community. This concept of integration had to be based on the assumption that there was nothing of value in the black community and that little of value could be created among black people. So the thing to do was to siphon off the acceptable Negroes into the surrounding white middle-class communities. Thus, the goals of the movement for integration was simply to loosen up the restrictions barring the entry of Negroes into the white community. Goals such as public accommodations, open housing, job opportunities on the executive level around which the struggle took place are quite simply middle-class goals articulated by a tiny group of Negroes who had middle-class aspirations. Now, I do believe that the press had quite a bit to do with that, because while we were waging our battles in the South in the early 60s, they were interpreting it for us. And I used to watch the editorial twins of America, Chuck and what's his other name? Huntley and Brinkley, you know. And they would say, Negroes were marching in Mississippi today. They were beaten down by Jim Clark's posse, run across the street, ripped, shot at, but they're still marching to integrate. Next day I'd see me say, Negroes are now joined by their northern Negroes from the north who have come down to help them march. Today they were beaten by Ross Barnett, cattle whip, horse ran over them, but they're still marching to integrate. And then I decided, 
since I had a little work in uh, logic and philosophy, that the logical conclusion of that was I left New York to come to Mississippi to sit next to Barnett's daughter or to hold hands with Jim Clark. Obviously, I never did that. I went to Mississippi and Alabama to render those crackers impotent over my life. Over my life. Over my life. Now, now that is a big difference between integration. And this country could not admit that because we were fighting against white supremacy. We weren't fighting to integrate with anybody. That's a big difference. And the country could not admit that because to admit that, they would have to admit that they're white supremacists inside the home of the free and whatever nonsense who were in power. And uh, so they said we were fighting to integrate. How nice. Though they may slay me, yet will I serve them. That's, that's for us who are biblical in the in-group. <laughs> this limited class orientation was reflected not only in the programs and goals of the civil rights movement, but by its tactics and organizations. It is very significant that the two oldest and most respectable civil rights organizations have constant... Constant... Excuse me. I can only say three-fifths of that word. You can have it. That's the only another fifth. What's the word there? Well, constitutions, yes. Yeah. Uh, I left off the fifth there on the when I, when I become five-fifths, I'll be able to say the whole word. Well, anyway, these organizations have those things which specifically prohibit partisan political activity. The Congress of Racial Equality once did, but changed that clause when it changed its orientation towards black power. But this is perfectly understandable in terms of the strategy and goals of our older organizations. The civil rights movement saw its role as a kind of liaison between the powerful white community and the dependent black one. The dependent status of the black community apparently was unimportant since it was, if the movement was successful, going to blend into the white community anyway. We made no pretense of organizing and developing institutions of community power inside the black community, but in appealing to the conscience of white institutions of power. The posture of the civil rights movement was that of the dependent, the suppliant, the theory was that without attempting to create any organized base of political strength itself, the civil rights movement could be forming coalitions with various of the liberal pressure organizations in the white community, liberal reform clubs, labor unions, church groups, progressive civic groups, and at times one or the other of the major political parties. It could thus influence national legislation and national social patterns. I believe we've all seen the limitations of this approach. We have repeatedly seen that political alliances based on the appeals of conscience and decency are chancy things simply because institutions and political organizations have no conscience outside their own special interest. The political and social rights 
of black people have been and always will be negotiable and expendable the moment they conflict with the interests of our so-called allies. If we do not learn from history, says the philosopher Sartre, we are doomed to repeat it. And that is precisely the lesson that we must learn from the Reconstruction period. Blacks were allowed to register, vote, and participate in politics because it was to the advantage of a powerful white ally to promote this, notably Tom Watson, that great liberal. But this was the result of a white decision, Tom Watson's decision, and it was ended by the same white man's decision, Tom Watson again, <laughs> before any political base powerful enough could be developed inside the southern black community to challenge that decision. Thus, at this point in the struggle, blacks have no assurance save a kind of idiot optimism and faith in a society whose history is one of blatant racism, that if it were to become necessary, even the painfully limited gains thrown to the civil rights movement by the liberal Congress will not be revoked as soon as a shift in political sentiment should occur. The major limitations of this approach was that it tended to maintain the traditional dependence of blacks and of the movement. We depended upon the goodwill and support of various groups within the white community whose interests were not always compatible with ours. To the extent that we depended on the financial support of other groups, we were vulnerable to their influence and domination as SNCC has come to find out. Also, the program that evolved out of this coalition was really limited and inadequate in the long term and one which affected only a small group of selected Negroes. Its goal was to make the white community accessible to the qualified Negro and presumably each year a few more Negroes armed with their passports, a couple of university degrees, would escape into white middle-class America and adopt the attitudes and lifestyle patterns of that group. And one day, the Harlems and the Watts would stand empty, a tribute to the success of integration. This is simply neither realistic, nor is it particularly desirable. You can integrate communities, but you assimilate individuals. Even if such a program were possible, its result would be not to develop the black community as a functional and honorable segment of the total society with its own cultural identity, life patterns, and institutions, but to abolish it, the final solution to black people's problem in this country. Karl Marx reminds us that the working class is the only class that wants to abolish itself. If one were to listen very closely to some of our moderate Negro leaders, you would think that black people were the first people that wanted to abolish themselves. The fact is that what must be abolished is not the black community, but the dependent colonial status that has been inflicted upon it. The racial and cultural personality of the black community must be preserved and the community must win its liberation while preserving its cultural integrity. This is the essential difference between integration as it is currently practiced and the concept of black power. And what has the movement for integration accomplished to date? That the Negro graduating from Michigan State 
with a doctorate will have better job opportunities available to her than even Linda Bird Johnson. But the rate of unemployment in the black community is steadily increasing, while that in the white community decreases. More educated Negroes hold executive type jobs in major corporations and federal agencies than ever before, but the gap between white income and black income has almost doubled in the last 20 years. More suburban housing is available to Negroes if they can stand the rocks, but housing condition in the ghetto is steadily declining. That's Cicero. While the infant mortality rate of New York City is at its lowest rate ever in the city's history, the infant mortality rate of Harlem is steadily climbing. There has been an organized national resistance to the Supreme Court's order to integrate the schools, and the federal government has not acted to enforce that order. Less than 15% of black children in the South attend one-way integrated schools, and the vast majority of blacks who live in the South and in the North must still attend segregated black schools, which are still increasingly decrepit, overcrowded, understaffed, inadequately equipped, and funded. And this country tells us that we should focus our attention on the 15% because the 85% is expendable. You know, in order to get into a white school, if you're black and you're going to integrate, you have to be an A student. Did you know that? We can't send the worst of our race to represent us. You know. Besides, white people won't accept the bad ones. You've got to send the ones who they approve of. So they take our best, the best that we have in our schools, and send them to sit with animals whose parents throw rocks and bottles and cigarette butts at them while they walk up to come and sit next to their kids. That's integration in this country. And we just say we need the best with us. Let white society civilize itself. It's their problem. This explains they ought to bring their missionaries back from Africa and send them into their own schools. <laughs> teach them about love in Jesus Christ. If they ever taught him, though, they'd tear up this country because he was revolutionary. Dig it? <laughs> this explains why the rate of school dropouts is increasing among black teenagers who then express their bitterness hopelessness and alienation in the only means they have through imitating this society via violence. As long as people in the ghettos of our large cities feel that we're the victims of the misuse of white power without any way to have our needs representative, represented, we will continue to have rebellions. These are not the products of black power, but of the absence of any organization capable of giving the community the power, the black power, that it needs to deal with its problems. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee proposes that it is now time for the black liberation movement to stop pandering to the fears and anxieties of the white middle class America in an attempt to earn its goodwill and to return to the ghettos to organize those communities to control themselves. 
this organization must be attempted in the northern and southern urban areas as well as the rural black belt areas of the south. The chief antagonist to this organization is, in the south, the overtly racist Democratic Party and in the north, the equally corrupt and just as racist big city machine. The standard argument presented against independent political organization is, but you are only 10%. I cannot see what the relevance of this observation is, since no one is talking about taking over the country, because God knows we wouldn't know what to do with this monster, but rather of taking control over our own communities. The fact is that black population or not, 10% or not, we have never been able to feel the true voting strength of our potential numbers. And that what is also important is that, ironically, because of segregation, we are strategically placed inside this country where we could vote, where they were white and liberal enough. The case has always been that the white political machines stacks and gerrymanders the political subdivisions in our communities so that the true voting strength is never reflected in political strength. Would anyone looking at the distribution of political power in Manhattan ever think that blacks represented 60% of the population there? And that has nothing to do with the Puerto Rican community with which we just hooked up. Just as often the effective political organization in the black communities is absorbed by tokenism and patronage, the time-honored practice of giving certain offices to selected Negroes. The machine thus creates a little machine which is subordinate and responsive to it in the black community. These so-called Negro political leaders are really vote deliverers, more responsible to the white machine and the white power structure than to the community they allegedly represent. Thus is the white community able to substitute patronage control for audacious black power in the black community. This is precisely what LBJ tried to do even before the Voting Rights Act of 65 was passed. The National Democrats made it clear, crystal clear, that the measure was intended to register Democrats, not black people. The president and top officials of the Democratic Party called in almost 100 selected Negro leaders from the Deep South. Nothing was said about changing the policies of racist state parties. Nothing was said about repudiating such leadership figures as Eastland and Roth Barnett of Mississippi or George and Laureen Wallace of Alabama. What was simply said, and I quote, is, Go home and organize your people into the local Democratic Party then we'll see about poverty, money, and appointments, my fellow Americans. (laughs) We must organize black community power to end these abuses and to give the black community a chance to have its needs expressed, a leadership which is truly responsible not to the white press and power structure, but to the community must be developed. A leadership which will recognize that its power lies in the unified and collective strength of that community. This will make it difficult for the white leadership group to conduct its dialogue with individuals in terms of patronage and prestige and will force them 
to talk to the community's representatives in terms of real black power. The single aspect then of the black power program that has come into the most criticism is this concept of independent political organization. This is presented as third partyism, which has never worked, or withdrawal into black nationalism, which leads to isolationism and therefore yields reverse racism. If such a program is done, it will not have the effect of isolating the black community, but the reverse. When the black community is able to control local offices and negotiate with other groups from a position of organized strength, the possibility of meaningful political alliances on specific issues will be increased. That is a rule of politics, and there is no reason why it should not operate here. The only difference is that we will have the power to define the terms of those alliances. The next question usually is, so, can it work? Can the ghettos, in fact, be organized? The answer is that this organization must be successful because there are no viable alternatives, not the war on poverty, which was at its inception limited to dealing with effects rather than causes, and has simply become another source of machine patronage. Integration is meaningful only to a small chosen within the black community. The revolution in agricultural technology in the South is displacing the rural black community into northern urban areas. Both Washington, D.C. and Newark, New Jersey have black majorities. The inner city in most major urban areas are already predominantly black. And with the white rush to suburbia, blacks will in the next three decades control the heart of our great cities. These areas can become either concentration camps with a bitter population whose only power is the power to destroy or organized and powerful communities able to make constructive contributions to the total society. Without the power, the black power, to control our lives and our communities, without effective political institutions with which to relate to the total society, our communities will exist in a constant state of insurrection. This is a choice that this country will have to make. I want to thank you. I have a feeling my presence here is somewhat anticlimactic, <laughs> especially after our uh, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello uh, routine. However, my name is Jim Carbine, and I'm here on behalf of the Associated Students of Michigan State University who are financing the speech this afternoon and co-sponsoring it with the Student Nonviolent, nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I can only pronounce three-fourths three of that word. Uh. Pat Smith, who is the uh, 
Michigan State uh, President for this chapter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who put this on has asked me to thank three groups, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Delta Sigma Theta, and Alpha Phi Alpha, who gave up their time to act as ushers and set up the, uh, the physical facilities for this afternoon's program. I think they deserve a lot of credit. Well, now, as, with as little time as we have left, move into a question and answer period. We'll have to cut it off when the time limit is up, so if anyone has any questions now, far away. Well, here we have one down here. Would you repeat Yeah. You want him to repeat on the conversation he had with Saul Olinsky in Detroit. You're but, um, I, I think that our politics um, vary. Um, but as an organizer, I cannot deny the fact that he's been the one person in this country who's been in the black communities in the northern areas organizing. So that there are a lot of tactics maybe that I could pick up from him. But I think politically we disagree. Did you catch that? Yeah, the question is essentially is SNCC attacking the black bourgeoisie in its attempt to organize the slums? Is that correct analysis? No. Okay. Uh, the question then is that SNCC has not yet come out to incorporate the black bourgeoisie to bring them into a political consciousness. Um, well, we started with, when you start a movement, a political movement, you start off with a broad, inclusive philosophy to try and get everybody. Now I think the black bourgeoisie as individuals have made it in this society, and that we cannot as yet focus our attention on them. We have to focus our attention more on the scum areas, because they represent the people who are willing to fight the hardest, and the ones who you can really bring together into an organization for. That isn't to say that we neglect the black bourgeoisie. We do, in fact, do a number of things with them on the side, and we're hoping to slowly pull them in. But we can't focus all our attention on them just yet, because we feel in the long run, they're the ones who are brainwashed and must come home. Did I get you? In here in the third row. <laughs> That's the first row. <laughs> the question is, what relevance do you report to the White House report on the effect of the uh, Negro family? Mm -hmm. well, I, I got a thing about white folks talking about my mama playing the dozens with me, you know. And, um, and, um, yeah. and that's what that report was all about. I think that those white cats ought to function on white society and the disruption there. I think that the problems that we have are long and so social problems, but that the effect, that the real effect comes from the outside community, the white community, which exploits and oppresses us more than from internal because we don't have any way to control anything that exists in our community so that they can program us so that that's what happens. I mean, that's the way they program us. They program us so we end up in Vietnam. And then they say, well, they can't find jobs. Of course they can't find jobs. They don't provide any. 
And then they tell you, well, the best way to enjoy life and equality is in the army on the front lines in Vietnam. <laughs> that's because we're programmed that way, and that's precisely how white society has programmed the ghettos of this country. Because any black man in this country who has been aggressive must be castrated by white America. Must be castrated. Check out your history. All the black men who were aggressive were lynched physically in the old days. Then you had the destruction of Du Bois, making it impossible for him to function in this country. Paul Robeson, Richard Wright, check them all out. Let us not talk about Marcus Garvey, let alone the death of Malcolm X. And then let's bring it down close to aggressive Mr. Powell. And finally, the greatest, Muhammad Ali. That's all right. Their job, their job, their job has always been to castrate aggressive black men so that the only people left would be the females. Then they turn around and blame us for it. If they wouldn't castrate us, we'd function. Ron, did you ever? The question is, uh, now that a definition of black power has been made, uh, what do you feel is going to happen between the splits and the various, between the various uh, civil rights organizations? Well, I don't think there's a split. I think that in all movements you have groups that vie for the um, ears of the masses. I mean, when Castro went to the hills, there were nine cats who were vying for it, and Castro won. You know, when Mao was fighting, there were a whole lot of cats vying with him, and uh, he won. And that inside all movements, you have that. You have people who vie and organizations that vie. And that the one who has the doctrine that most people listen to are the one they adhere to. I think what it represents, though, in this day and age, and started certainly with uh, Malcolm X, is that black people will pick their leaders and that they will no longer allow white people to pick them. Um, see, what white folks didn't understand was they gave us a big help when they blasted black power. Uh, when they all blasted it, black folk knew it must be good. Had to be good. <laughs> and so I just think that that's part of it. Uh, way back over there underneath the eaves there. That's the art right there. The question was, why not have the radicals take over the liberals in, the, in an established party rather than creating a third party? Uh, precisely in the Democratic Party. That's the theory the old socialists had. They used to call it realignment that they would get into the Democratic Party and push it further left and gain control. Now, an inspection of history in this country inside the Democratic Party proves that that's just impossible, that what usually happens is that those people themselves become co-opted. And that, in fact, if you're going to develop a real movement in this country, what you have to do is to draw the lines real tight, see, so that the liberals will pick sides. And that if the conservatives are controlled, it just means the line is really drawn tight. So you can see if, in fact, the liberals who mouth liberalism are really liberals or, in fact, conservatives who mouth liberalism. The second thing is that before you can gain control, you've got to break the backs of the Democratic Party. And that we aim to try to do that, to break the backs of the Democratic Party in this country. And that we can effectively do that, whether we're 10% or not, because... In 62, 63, this country reapportioned itself, rest vesting the powers within the urban areas of the country. And that's where we are. That's where we are. 
and that we can begin to develop that independent political force to just split the party wide open wherever it is and that given the discontent of radicals maybe they will begin to do the same thing and a real movement can develop also because we do not believe that a two-party system is the best type of system to maintain to maintain a democracy we have to fight for more parties so you've got to fight for independent parties see our, our, our major assumption would say that we do not agree that the two-party system is the best system your assumptions already accept that the two-party system is the best way I okay. The question is for Mr. Carmel to explain what role he played in the riots, uh, quote unquote, in Atlanta last summer. It was a, both an active and a passive role, but the passive role was more powerful. See, um, when the rebellion broke out, caused a white cop shot a black youth. So we went over and we told black people, you don't have to tolerate this anymore. Let us protest. So the white police, so the white police, when they heard that we were going to protest, came out with their machine guns and they brought out their armed guards with their helmets and they got the people, you know, more upset. And they started to issue orders and the people had just had enough. So they started to riot. Now, I was right in the middle of it didn't throw a brick, didn't throw a brick, stood right by the policeman and said very nicely, if you want to stop this, take your cracker cops out of here. It'll stop. But they didn't listen. Oh, they just kept ordering, so the whole thing went. Then they arrested me for inciting to riot, put me into it. <laughs> now, here's where my passive role became important. Because when I was in jail, that's when they really started to riot. <laughs> they had these signs saying, get snake people out of jail or we will really tear up the city. And it spread to the next side. So they came running into jail and begged me to get out. And I told them, hell no. They had a $10,000 bond on me and the progressive racist and his lackeys in and they dropped the charge of inciting to riot three days after I was in jail. Your good news media didn't tell you that. And to save face, they charged me with something called rioting. Well, now that's just what we wanted because I wanted to get these white folks on a charge like that. Because you see, after every major rebellion in these cities, what happens is that when they finally quieted down the natives, they come running in and they pick up any native they see, because we all look alike. And, um, <laughs> and they arrest us for rioting. See, and rioting is a very vague term. So when I got out, I brought an injunction against the city of Atlanta called Carmichael versus Ivan Allen et al. Et al is for the other racist. And um, we just won that injunction, which means that the 90 people that they arrested in the rebellion, they must let loose, scot-free and that the charge, that case, now sets a precedent. It means that during a rebellion, when the police go in to arrest somebody, they cannot arrest them for rioting. They must say, Mr. Jones threw a brick, or Mr. Johnson beat up a policeman. They must have specific acts so they can't have their mass concentration camp.
the newspapers didn't say that. But uh, you can write to Atlanta and ask them for the case. They lost it. They should foot the bill. It's called Carmichael versus Allen et al. Just handed down by a free panel federal court. Okay. We still have time for some more. Okay, over there. You haven't got the balcony at all. They're going to get mad at you. Oh, well, uh, next time. I think the, the just of that is to uh, appeal to sympathetic white people in this well, movement. No, the question is, can't I perceive of why I want to wear the correct that, That's right. <laughs> the question is that, don't I perceive of some white people who believe that I should get what rightfully is mine, and if I do, why do not I appeal to them? Because when one builds a movement, one appeals to one's people, not to groups in the oppressing camp. Clearly. Clearly. That's number one. If groups in the oppressing camp get upset, that's their problem, because if they believe in what you're doing, then they can support that program. But now, secondly, I do not think that white people can help me get what is rightfully mine. I think they can move into the white community to stop them from denying me what is rightfully mine. There's a big difference. White people can't give me freedom. They can only stop exploiting me, so that we urge white people who say they believe in our program to move into white society and help civilize it. And, and that is also important because of the psychological impact it has on blacks. See, there is nowhere in this country where a black man is in a position of power to do things by himself and stick his tongue out at white folk like Powell used to do. So that wherever we are in positions of power, there's always somebody white over us pulling the strings. So black children are always asking the question, can black people do those same things alone, by themselves, without white people showing them how? We're interested in our generation that's coming up. We don't ever want them to question their ability to rule themselves or to do anything white people can do. Therefore, we're going to do it for them. We will be their heroes. No more George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Snick's going to be their heroes. Okay, up here. All right. What plan of action have you hypothesized? in the urban cities, uh, dot, 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 uh, to uh, accomplish our, our basic plan of action. We've just outlined here philosophically the concept under which we're going to move to do that. SNCC, you know, when we started SNCC in 1960, we sat down and looked at the country. The interest, <coughs> the uh, power in terms of population number was vested in the rural areas of this country, not in the cities. So we started to plot out the rural black areas of the South where our numbers were powerful so that we could fight for the right to vote. After having won the right to vote, then you could fight to vote the way you want to vote. Understand that. In 62-63, while we were building political bases in the South, the country reapportioned itself, shifting the power to the urban areas where we are. We did not leave the South because we wanted to continue building our bases. Now we have those bases and we're broadening them and we're now slowly moving to the North so that around this concept we'll begin to develop those. And we've tried that in Philadelphia, we're trying to develop independent political parties, 
and independent candidates in Chicago. We're beginning to push that idea and up along the West Coast. But we're moving uh, to take over those areas where we can independently. But our eyes are aimed for 1972 because that's Bobby versus Humphrey and Lindsay versus Regan and while they're split, we can work out. <laughs> one more. One, one more question here. Uh, we, Ernie, we've been down there. Let's try this bank over here. Uh, right in the front on the in the balcony there. It, it, since the advent of black power, what economic effect or how is this increased or decreased the budget of SNCC? And uh, then there, then you go into the appeal of uh, liberal white money in the in the same area. Well, let me first say that that containment has been great. That white people has just stopped. Um, that answers the first question. And the second question was. If, what was the second question? I'm sorry, I can't remember your second question. Why? Oh, yeah, right. Why does then? Okay. We have a political philosophy that we advocate. We think that polit political philosophy is sound. We then advocate it to anybody who's willing to listen to it and is willing to help support it. Period. And we would hope that people who agree with that would then start moving. I mean, our message always to white liberals is that if you really believe that you have to move into your community to develop institutions of power that will combat racism because on the question of racism white society is a monolithic structure now if you're really liberals as you say you are you will develop institutions to split didn't ask your question oh if they want to give we take money from anybody I beg your pardon Oh, no, on the contrary, we'll move deeper into the black community. But that, you know, if we can get money from anybody, we just take it because we need it, you know. And uh, we move harder into the black community, noting the problems that we have to uh, develop that community. Okay? I guess that's it. Thank you. Welcome back, and that was um, Stokely Carmichael speaking at uh, Michigan State University uh, on February 7th of 1967 to an audience of uh, 4,000 people on uh, the question of black power. Uh, this is uh, in connection with our Black August commemorations for 2022. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment. <laughs> And the stars at night The morning sun Shining big and bright Oh, I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling I'll sprinkle raindrops On your lovely face I'll wrap you in clover With a warm embrace I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling And I'll take you for a ride On a big white cloud Way up in the blue And every song that the robins sing 
just for you And I'll kiss your lips with the morning dew And every blooming rose will be just for you I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling And I'll take you for a ride on a big white cloud Way up in the blue And every song that the robins sing Girl, he'll sing just for you I'll kiss your lips with the morning dew And every blooming rose will be just for you Oh, I've got a lot to offer, darling I've got a lot to offer, darling That's so much to offer, darling Oh, I've got a lot to offer, darling Johnny Nash, and I've got a lot to offer, darling, uh, from the Soul Folk album. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And our final segment uh, deals with the recently held national presidential elections and parliamentary elections in uh, the East African state of Kenya, uh, which uh, resulted in uh, William Ruto uh, being victorious. He is president-elect. And uh, we're going to hear excerpts uh, from a report uh, from Africa Talk on these recently held elections. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Kenyans went to the polls on August the 9th in a race that saw Deputy President William Ruto and opposition leader Raila Odinga running neck and neck. On August the 15th, the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission declared William Ruto the winner with 50.49% of the vote. However, Raila Odinga rejected the results and stated he would be pursuing all constitutional and legal options available to contest the election. Now, as the country awaits the swearing-in of a new president, one thing is certain. Whoever takes office has his plate full. With a battered economy and spiraling costs of living ravaging the country, the incoming president has urgent issues to address. This week on the program, we look at what lies ahead for Kenya's new president, what issues he has to address, and how to unite a divided Kenya. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, joining me now to take a closer look at what lies ahead for Kenya's president-elect are from Johannesburg, Pumlani Majozi. He's an analyst in economics, political and global issues, and also a senior fellow at the African Liberty. In Nairobi, Patrick Gazara, writer, journalist, cartoonist and political analyst. And Mule Musau, the national coordinator for the Elections Observation Group in Kenya. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Patrick, if I may start off with you, because the 2022 Kenyan election has concluded, 
William Ruto has been declared president-elect by the Electoral Commission. You observed this election from voting to the announcement. What did you see? Well, I think it was one of the most uh, transparent elections that uh, uh, Kenya has had. Um, uh, uh, we, we saw all the results being put up um, uh, on the public portal, so anybody could add them up and uh, uh, see who the, who the winner was. And they seem to have been uh, verified uh, uh, by independent observers that um, uh, they at least were within what was announced was within what was expected. So um, I, I'm, I'm quite proud that we went through this as Kenyans and uh, that we ended up with an election that's really a step up from what um, uh, we've had before. Uh, Mule, as an independent observer, is this a step up from what Kenya has had before? Well, from where we sit, uh, because we've been observing elections since 2013, we have seen incremental gains. Uh, in respect of how elections have been managed um, in Kenya. Um, and just to give you an example, uh, in 2013, uh, the Kim's failure was at uh, 55%. Of, uh, more than half of the Kim's failed. Um, in 2016, uh, 2017, uh, it was 7.6%. In these elections, it was 6%. So uh, voting day operations, I think there's a, a lot of enhancement which has come through. Um, uh, the other, I think, big issue in this election is the fact that there was a level of transparency which is unprecedented in Kenyan elections in terms of uh, the resource management system uh, where the, the, the IBC was able to trans, uh, transmit uh, election uh, results through a public portal uh, which was accessible by everyone. Pumlani, your thoughts here, because you're watching this, of course, from uh, South Africa, and you know how Kenyan elections have played out in 2017, 2013, and going back even to 2007, what is the international observation here? Well, it's been quite positive, uh, what, what has uh, you know, come out of, of the election. Um, so given where Kenya comes from, this is a step up you know, uh, from the previous times. And uh, from South Africa, there's been that, uh, you know, positivity toward the outcome. We think that um, the Kenyans uh, have the, the opportunity to get their country back on track, to fix the fundamental issues that they are facing uh, from um, the economic uh, perspective, from a governance perspective, from the international relations perspective as well. So the, the view has been quite, uh, quite positive on the, on the, uh, at an international level when it comes to this election um, in Kenya. Uh, Patrick, I'm hearing a lot of positivity coming out of Kenya's election as compared to previous elections, but this has been a close contest. The two leading candidates were separated by about a two percentage point. Opposition leader Waila Odinga has rejected that result. So what do you see playing out in coming days? Well, um, uh, Raila Odinga, as you note, uh, as you note has um, uh, rejected the result, um, and it was a close result. Um, uh, and, uh, but he hasn't presented anything publicly that would convince me that um, the uh, results that were announced were fraudulent. Um, uh, it's, it's important to just note that um, I'm basing my assessment on what was publicly available, the information both on the IEPC portal and what other observers have noted. Um, uh, I haven't seen any evidence of sort of systematic um, uh, irregularities that would change uh, uh, the, the results that we have. So I think 
Right now, we are all expecting that um, uh, Raila might file a, a case. He hasn't committed to actually doing that at the Supreme Court. But um, uh, if he does, then hopefully we'll hear more about what he alleges happened. And then that might then, uh, depending on the weight of that evidence, it might change minds as to the transparency of the elections. My one uh, worry is um, uh, in the wording that he used about challenging his outcome, uh, he spoke of um, uh, legal and constitutional means. I'm hoping that that means he'll go to the Supreme Court because there are other legal and constitutional means he could use to challenge the outcome, which might include things like street demonstrations, mass action, or stuff like that, which you've seen in the past can really lead to uh, high tensions and uh, uh, even violence. All right. Uh, Mule, I do want to come to you on, on a slightly different question because the Electoral Commission, though, announced that the voter turnout in this election was rather low at 65%, one of the lowest in Kenya's electoral history. Do we know the reason for this? There could be a number of reasons. Uh, one, we know that there was a depressed uh, youth uh, participation in these elections, uh, judging by the fact that in the first instance they were unwilling to register when IBC did roll out a mass voter registration process earlier in the year. So young people did not participate very effectively. Uh, it would be interesting to see the numbers which came out in the actual election. Uh, but that's one thing. Um, and, and, and that was widespread across. And I've, I've talked to quite a number of people who um, uh, indicated that um, uh, they never participated. And, and this is the second lowest out of the last four, five elections. This is the second lowest after the 2002 election where we had 57%. So this is 65 um, uh, lower than the last two elections, um, it goes on to just show um, a level of fatigue, in my view, uh, of the Kenyan voters with participating in uh, elections which have been very rigorous, which have been very protracted, and which have been disputed over the last three, three, three times. Patrick, do you feel that there was a level of fatigue in this election this time around? Um, I, think, I think there was. Um, uh, I, I think that many young people did not see themselves reflected in the choices that were there. And there is a perception that, in essence, we're just um, uh, going through a ritual where it's the same people who we are electing uh, or the same choice uh, on the menu. Um, I think many young people are quite um, disenchanted with the political process as a whole, and there needs to be... Um, uh, an audit and uh, for us to think about how more we can engage them, not just in voting, but also in the day-to-day, -day, participating in the day-to-day -day decisions that are made by politicians and uh, 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 that then affect their lives. Then that might actually induce more of them to be um, uh, or to come up to be part of the, 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 the entire process. So, Patrick, let me just come back to the likely scenarios uh, that, that could happen here. You know, in the event that the election is upheld or nullified, what is likely to happen? Well, if the... Um, Welcome back, and uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, that was a brief report on developments uh, in Kenya uh, in the aftermath of the recently held national elections. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.com.
www.blogspot.com. And you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, Saturday, August 20th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to close out our program uh, with the legendary uh, jazz guitarist, uh, Wes Montgomery, uh, live at the BBC. Uh, This is a recording done on March 25th of 1965. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Jazz musicians have only to make a couple of records or sit in on a few jam sessions to be hailed as new discoveries. Well, with our star guest on Jazz 625 tonight, exactly the opposite happened. For many years, he was virtually unknown to the wide jazz public. And then, five years ago, came not only recognition, but also acceptance as one of the masters of his instrument, the jazz guitar. The name is Wes Montgomery. With him, making up the members of his quartet are on piano, someone who uh, was quite recently in Miles Davis's band, and before that was Lionel Hampton, Harold Mayburn. (laughs) On bass, a young man who's made several albums with J.J. Johnson quite recently, Arthur Harper. And on drums, a new name in, to, to British jazz fans, someone who comes from the West Coast of America and who will be known to jazz fans in the future, I'm quite sure, Jimmy Lovelace. <laughs> well, that's the West Montgomery Quartet, and now their first number, Jerome Kern's Yesterdays. <laughs>
is a West Montgomery original called Jingles. Wes is a, is a self-taught musician, but if you think that a self-taught musician is in any way a faulty or incomplete musician, take the opportunity of looking in close-up at the fantastic thumb technique which he's evolved. This is, uh, so far as I know, a, a unique technique, and it's one which makes even classically trained guitarists boggle, and they don't boggle too easily. Uh, over to the quartet now for, uh, for uh, a classic of modern jazz, Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. Thank mm -hmm. you. 